0: This is truly a special, special episode. I started working on this podcast in August of 2021, and I published my first episode on January 1st, 2022. In my head, I thought it would be really fun to have a list of dream guests that I could one day aspire to have a conversation with. In creating this list, the very first name I put on at the very top of the list was Kevin Kelly. And today, I got to have a conversation with him. For those of you who don't know, Kevin Kelly is the founding executive editor at Wired Magazine. He's also a prolific author who's written a number of books on cybernetics, artificial intelligence, and the future of technology. Outside of that, he's also contributed to a number of articles for publications like the New York Times, GQ, Esquire, Time Magazine, and Harper's, just to name a few. And if that wasn't enough, he's also an incredible photographer, conversationalist, and has served as an advisor to the future on films like The Matrix, as well as Steven Spielberg's The Minority Report. And just to set the stage for this conversation, Kevin Kelly is one of the first True futurist in terms of understanding how technology impacts our lives today, as well as where its place is within the universe. In fact, it was him who coined the term the technium, which has to do with this bubble that encompasses all technology, and he views that it's almost equatable to its own section within the animal kingdom. In this episode, we dig into it all. What does it mean to build slack into your routine? what does the future of the internet look like? Will artificial intelligence ever gain sentience? And why is it so important to remain optimistic about the future? If you've ever wondered about the answers to any of these questions, I think you're going to love, love, love this conversation. And So with all that being said, here is my conversation with Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We, we are so excited to have you. Tim Ferriss refers to you as the most interesting man in the world. And it is an opinion that we both definitely share. You've written books and articles about technology and given speeches on the technium as you refer to it. But one of the things I love about your story is that you identify yourself as a late bloomer. And as a late bloomer myself, I find this it's enormously comforting. So, I was just hoping maybe you could just take us through your decision to drop out of college and how that's related to your decisions later in life to become a founder of Wired Magazine, photographer, and the futurist that you are today.
1: Yeah. I was a very active, but I would say okay student in high school. The one thing I did was I was kind of a very much of a maximizer. So, I doubled up and every science course I could get, in math course I could get my hands on, plus every art course. And I think I graduated from my high school having taken every single one of those courses that was offered. I wasn't very, I mean, I got okay grades in it, but for me, the grades, even at that time, were not important. I was really interested in learning. And when it came time for college, the choices were very limited back in the 60s when i was in high school what i needed was a gap year what i needed was like an internship what i needed was something to do other than to sit in the classroom for another four years but it was not available and so i applied to colleges sight unseen i never visited a single college campus that was not something you did in those days i just looked up in the book I, I applied to a couple of them, having never been to a college campus in my life. And I went to the University of Rhode Island. To, and my, my declared major was geology. But I it was, it was a, the wrong fit. I mean, I could, uh, after the first year of trying to take grade 13 is what it felt like, I just couldn't sit in the classroom anymore. I had to do something. And so I, I dropped out. I spent the next year reading books on the beach in Arrogansett, Rhode Island, where I read almost a book a day until I read Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman, this amazing poem about the Americas and the vitality and the variety of what was going on in America. And at that moment, my gasket blew and I had to travel. I was seized by this thing of, I need to travel. I need to see the world. I just cannot sit in, you know, New England any longer. And so I had a friend who was studying Chinese in Taiwan, and he said, "When you come visit me? And it's like, I'd never eaten Chinese food in my life. I never <laughs> held chopsticks. Again, it's kind of hard to understand how parochial. Um, you know, I was in the suburbs of New York growing up, but it could have been a century earlier. We were just so close. There were so few options and knowledge about anything. So I went to to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and later on to Japan and it blew my mind. It just, everything was different and everything was open. Things were kind of done on the street and it was like, this was my college. So I kept going back, I would earn a little money and then go back and travel around for very cheaply. And it was one, amazing thing after another. And that became my university. I kind of joked to myself, I was giving myself a degree in Asian studies. <laughs> okay. so, so I was kind of resigning myself to never having a career. But my hero in high school was Henry David Thoreau, Walden. I was hippie-ish. I really felt that it was important to kind of like do things on your own schedule and I was going to be resigned to being poor, but I would have a lot of time. And I was encountered the whole earth catalog right after graduation. And that was giving me permission to invent my life because it was very clear from the people who were submitting things that there were all these other options available that I'd never even encountered in suburban my suburban high school life. And for for me growing up, the only option really after high school was college. There was nothing else. But it was very clear, and once I started traveling, I, I saw that there was plenty of options. So I I kept traveling, and it was much easier to do than I thought. And every time we had to arrive somewhere, there was always somewhere adjacent to it that was just down the road, and so it became kind of addictive in its sense of like. You know, you go to Taiwan, well, the Philippines are next to the Taiwan, so then you go to the Philippines, well, then there's Indonesia, and so what's next to Indonesia is India, and so there's this kind of never-ending goals of places to go to and see that are vastly different than what you ever expected. And so uh, I spent about a decade traveling in Asia and becoming Asian in my perspective as well uh, at the same time just kind of absorbing a lot of the perspective. And I continued to, to travel to Asia over the next following 40 years. So I had 50 years in total. I married an Asian. I have half Asian kids. And that that initial trip turned to be one of the most important things I ever did because it opened up a world world, the world that I had never even imagined was there that's incredible
0: very inspiring too i I like that the inciting incident was also a walt whitman poem for sure yeah you talked about you know creating your own schedule and inventing your own life and one of the things that i really like that you've said is that you're a big fan of giving yourself slack so this idea that, you know, when you're younger, you should allow yourself to make mistakes and to measure your happiness based on the satisfaction of experience rather than anything that might be measurable with n- numerals or metrics in some regard. Can you maybe speak to maybe a f- a why you're such a big fan of giving yourself slack? So,
1: so when I say give myself slack, one of the things I mean is you should take time off. You should have sabbaticals sabbaths on a weekly basis you should have a not just a work ethic but a rest ethic that you should take vacations staycations that taking a break is not a sign of weakness but a sign of strength yeah. so the idea is is that i think there's an overemphasis on this idea of being productive and efficient that's only really useful if you're doing the right things <laughs> Okay, and so you really have to, and and determining the right thing to do is sort of what Peter Drucker called the executive function. It's a high level thing that is very difficult. So you really have to protect and give a lot of time to making sure you're doing the right thing that you're going to be efficient about. And so that right thing is, is, again, really, really difficult to ascertain, and most people spend most of their life trying to figure out what it is the right thing to do. I don't mean just like the right thing to do tomorrow. I mean just the right thing to do with your life. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so, I think that that function that 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 assignment requires a different mode. It's not production and efficiency. It's it comes usually the it the 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 answers come in moments when we're playing, Hmm. when we're relaxing, when we're shifting between things, when we are exploring, all those are very inefficient. So I very early on realized that there was this value in the Slack. And also, by the way, there's another aspect of the Slack, which is that as an employer, when you have people working for you, When you have an organization, you also want to build slack into the organization, meaning that if everybody is working to their capacity efficiently, you don't have any room to do new things, to to experiment, to try something that will fail. There's often a person on a team whose job is kind of very hard to describe, and they may just be the glue, the social glue. They may be those... They may be doing something that is sort of slack related, and there's a tendency to kind of squeeze them out because you can't measure what they're doing. And so, in all respects, I, I really try to build in slack and that ability to shift and move, and to have some buffer and to have some extra capacity that's not being used to enable you to to, to see something quickly. And so. That's two of your life too. If your life is all scheduled out, then something comes along that's really amazing. You don't have room for it, and so there's many levels of this of a slack that I, I I really encourage people as a means of the highest level of of a life, and not to just trying to um, optimize what is known. You want to be able to be able to optimize things that are also not known. That's a fantastic answer.
0: I, I, I love the the idea of of the most important moments happening when you're relaxing or playing or, you know, giving yourself that slack. I find that to be very true for myself. But I think the way that you've articulated it was was quite poignant. I wanted to ask you about the future. I consider you kind of like a godfather of futurism in a lot of ways. You've written a lot about artificial intelligence and its ability to bring around the next industrial revolution. So from what I understand, your theory is really just combining artificial intelligence with services that actually already exist. So for instance, we could combine artificial intelligence with cars, taxi industry, and we get Uber or something like that. But on the internet, there's been kind of this this huge thing called Web 3.0. As someone who was around for the inception of the internet and really got to dive into it at its infancy, I'm curious to get your perspective on Web 3.0 and what impact it may have on the way that we connect with each other.
1: Yeah, Web 3.0 is a little bit of a very catch-all phrase right now. It came originally out of the crypto world, and it has spread a little bit to include things like even mixed reality in the metaverse in a weird way. But and then just <laughs> yesterday there are people talking about web five O's. Like I I, I I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, so a form. Um, <laughs> exactly. before the um it's it's a little bit of a marketing thing, but th- there's several things. Th- you know, whatever actually is the mechanical underpinnings of Web three. There will be another version of the web, and I think people are generally correct that the web is not going to go away. It's going to go away. It's going to continue to evolve. And so, what is next is is in some ways an evolution of the current system rather than a replacement of it. So people talk about the metaverse, I have used the word mirror world. It's basically what I think is the next thing after, next device after phones, which is the smart glasses, Hmm. where you can see an overlay. You can block it out and you have VR. If you leave them see through, you have augmented reality, the metaverse. But I think that does ride on top of the web. So I, I think rather than seeing this as kind of an alternative replacement to it, it does sit upon and kind of ride upon the basic underpinnings of the web, meaning kind of links and TCIP and that kind of stuff. And that's what I would call Web3 is, is that. Now, the crypto people have a very particular vision for Web3, which is that they're unhappy with several aspects of it. The, the first one being that it's kind there, there are kind of monopoly dynamics about the web which is that the bigger get bigger. Um, It's called increasing returns, and it means that network with many people is much, much more valuable than with a few people. And so that's also true for the, the consumer. Consumers want the biggest possible network, and so they all tend to coalesce into really big networks, and they get bigger and bigger. I'm not sure that dynamic ceases in 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 the crypto world but the idea is that you want to be able to own a little bit more to 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 have a little bit more control over the data to be able to be an owner of this system instead of just being kind of a product of the system
0: mm-hmm.
1: so right now it's very clear that things are running on data but The data that we have does not seem to be, we're not being paid for it. We get kind of intangible benefits from it and we don't have much control about it. So the crypto people are kind of imagining an alternative to the current web that's built on blockchains. And there could theoretically be some advantages to having a web built around blockchain. There are tons of disadvantages on that. And the disadvantages is that that all decentralized systems are inherently less efficient than centralized systems. That's just the nature, that's just their nature. Mm -hmm. So evolution is a very decentralized system and it's incredibly inefficient. So a frog will have like a million eggs Mm nor do two two frogs survive. That's incredibly inefficient. And then there's just the general thing of making thousands and thousands and thousands of variations in the hope that one or two will will survive. That's a decentralized system, and it's, it's adaptable. It's the most adaptable thing that you can make, but the cost of that is that it's inefficient. And so technologically, you can make a much more adaptable system with blockchain. But there's a cost to it, and there's an energy cost to it, and there's other costs. And so that's the that's what's happening right now is Web three o envisions an alternative system made with blockchain where people kind of could own their own data, maybe have a little more control about it, maybe get more direct benefits from it. But there are costs involved, and what we don't know is whether or not people are going to be willing to pay those costs, people meaning the people making it and running it and the consumer. So that's my version of Web3, which is that it's it's an alternative, and it would mean kind of remaking things, not just adding on top. And that's the important part I was trying to make, is that this, it, this would not just be an extension of taking the current Web and involving it. This, this is like replacing it fundamentally from the ground up. And that, to me, seems very difficult and probably unlikely. The fact that they have to kind of rebuild it. However, we should have an alternative to the web. We should have one just in case that web goes down for some reason, you have another thing going. So I am actually, I encourage the idea of trying to imagine alternatives and trying to make them because we should have a backup we should have an alternative version and it's really good to have two versions of things so they can compete. So, you know, like we don't want to have just one social media. We like to have two or three. That's yeah. the natural thing. So anyway, I am encouraging these experiments, even though I think historically it's unlikely that one will will work. Yeah. It's like the, all these tech startups, they kind of remind me of your analogy
0: of the frog laying 100 eggs, maybe two of them are successful. I think technology works in the same way. Right. So your point about being the ownership of and of the product and having like a little bit more ownership as consumers, I understand what you're talking about because it seems like for a long time, we didn't really get much out of the exchange as consumer uses free product, but we're giving up all of our data. And it seems like the appetite to want more control over that is something that we'd be yeah. interested in having.
1: Yeah. So the, the main complaint about social media for right now is that it r- runs in the business model of your attention, where you're surrendering your attention to ads and other stuff. And that's your payment. However, you know, for instance, I I, I would gladly pay Twitter some amount of money per year as a subscription to not see ads yeah. paying. I, I switched to a YouTube premium and my gosh, it changed my life. <laughs> I spent so much time on YouTube and with premium, I don't see the ads. There are no yeah. ads. It's just glorious. And I'm very happy to pay ads. And so the same thing with search, I have switched my search. I've been, you know, Google from day one, almost as soon as Google was invented But I switched away from Google to Neva where I'm paying because I don't see the ads. The results are all organic results right from the top. And I would be very happy to pay Google $100 a year to get their search without the ads in it. So there are other business models where we get direct benefits and we're willing to pay for those benefits directly without messing with our attention. I think those are very viable and we're going to see more of those.
0: About two years ago, Kevin Kelly put out an article on his website called 68 Pieces of Unsolicited Advice. Each bit is about a sentence long, two tops, and I was hoping that I could ask him to expand on some of the wisdom included in these pieces, but unfortunately, we didn't have enough time. So instead, I thought I would read you some of my favorite pieces of advice in case they are as helpful to you as they are to me. The first one is don't be the best, be the only. So there are plenty of examples of this in business. So companies like Google, for instance, have captured an enormous amount of the market share because they were the only company involved in web search when the internet first started, or at least one of the few companies. But I think there is a more important lesson here that we are able to apply to our own lives. At work, you may master a program that maybe nobody else is familiar with as a creative It's really important to establish your own voice when creating any type of content. And one way to do that is to not try to be the best at everything, but to take a more focused approach in terms of building up the skills you want to improve and being more particular about where you spend your time. So don't be the best, be the only. Number two, gratitude unlocks all other virtues, and it's something that you can get better at. This one is probably my favorite on the list. And that's because I've experienced this firsthand, so I know how powerful this one can be. Oftentimes when we think of gratitude, it's in response to some type of positive experience. But what I've learned is that if we can be thankful not only for the little things, but even for the things that may inconvenience us, that obstacles, trials, and changes to plans in our life that maybe we wouldn't have designed for ourselves. If we can be thankful for these things, then I think it really provides an opportunity for growth. Life just gets a lot easier because you no longer feel like the universe is conspiring against you. And because of that, you're just happy to wake up in the morning or to catch up with some friends that you maybe haven't seen in a while. To me, gratitude is about refocusing on the things that are actually important and being able to disregard things that are maybe insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And by doing this, I think you not only operate in a much better headspace. But this allows you to refocus your time into areas that you also want to improve. So not only is gratitude great, but it also is the key to unlocking all other virtues. And number three, this is the last one. Before you're old, attend as many funerals as you can bear and listen. Nobody talks about the departed's achievements. The only thing that they remember is what kind of person you were while you were achieving them. This one, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, but I do think that it is a piece of advice that many of the people that we admire in society could benefit from. Achievements are wonderful, but most of the time, nobody remembers your achievements. In fact, most people don't even remember the specific conversations that you have. But what people will remember about you is how you made them feel when they were interacting with you. So definitely pay attention to that. If you like some of the ideas in this article, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes so you can have access to it yourself. But I'll also add a few podcasts that Kevin Kelly's been a part of in case you really like this conversation and would like to hear more from him. I'll just throw a few of my favorites in there so that you can check those out as well. But for now, here's my conversation with Kevin Kelly. I I wanted to get your perspective on artificial intelligence because I know that this is an area of your expertise. And... Technology is evolving really fast. You believe that a future in which machines gain sentience and start wreaking havoc on humans like the Terminator or the Matrix are highly unlikely. But one thing I wanted to ask you about was, I'm not sure if you saw this, but The Guardian published this article yesterday. You know what I'm referring to?
1: That's right. The Google AI researcher who swore that he detected a setting consciousness in the new language model have lambda because they have conversations he was basically trying out these conversations and he was saying oh no no, no wait 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 there's something really there it mm-hmm. really there I, I i i saw it i i felt it and so he was trying to get google to own up to it to protect it i'm not really sure what he wanted them to do but the google execs were reviewing the transcripts of this said no 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 that, 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 that's just you're amorphizing it. You're personalizing it. It's not. There's nothing there, right? And you can't share this. And if you do, you're breaking, you know, confidential and all that kind of stuff, which he he broke. And so they said you're fired, or you're on leave. And right. so, so I, I think, you know, no, I don't think you know. Looking at the transcripts, it's not. There's probably nothing there. However, sooner or later, this is going to happen. People are going to say there's a ghost in the machine. There's something there. I felt yeah. it. I know when when I feel it. And this is going to this is going to be a common occurrence again and again. This is going to happen. This is like the first right. people saying, don't turn off the machine because I think there's something inside. And at some point, there really will be something inside. And what do we do about it? Well, we have lots of options because there's something inside is not going to be human. That's that's my point is that's an alien intelligence. It's an artificial alien. Mm-hmm. It could be like a dog, it could be like a dolphin, it could be a chimp. There could be a chimp inside. And so we don't really know how to deal with that. We have some legal stuff about dealing with pets and whether we're responsible for it, them or not. Pets is one model, servants is another model. The model I'm championing is aliens, but we have very little experience in dealing with aliens. And so I think this is going to be, this is, this is a rehearsal for many, many exchanges that are going to be very similar in, in the future. And the only reason why I'm paying attention to is is because it's the first of many.
0: Right. I so said, I knew this was good to bring up because I was like, if there's anybody who would have read this article, it's going to be you. And, you know, I read the transcripts from the conversations that they had. Yeah. And I, I'm not of the belief that it is sentience, but I was extremely impressed He talks about having a soul, the experience of what processing information is like. It talks about a fear of death. And so I can see why he would consider it to be sentient, at least to some degree. Right, right, right. I'm curious to hear your perspective because you wrote the book, What Technology Wants. And I'm curious if your views
1: of what technology wants has changed since you wrote that book. Right. But before I answer that question, I also did a graphic novel over 10 years with some people from Pixar and ILM. And the graphic novel was about robots and angels. And it was about this robot that says, look, I am, I claim to be sentenced. I want to be baptized or whatever it is. It's like, what do we do? If that conversation said, you know, tell me about God. Tell me what I should do. How should I live? That's an interesting problem if, if an entity on its own, volunteers, that it wants to be baptized? Do you baptize it? And so I did a whole novel, a whole graphic novel on around that idea. Well, we started it in 2003. So going back to your question about AI, I, I think what I feel now is, is that there are even more possibilities of minds than before. Yeah. And I think... I think maybe I've changed to to come to understand that maybe it's going to be a lot messier than I thought. So, so let me give you one example. I've been playing around with AI that generates images from a language prompt. Dolly 2 was one based on OpenAI, and there was another one that Google just announced called Imogen. So you give it the assignment in words, and it paints a picture or makes a photograph that is just unbelievably rich and detailed and creative. I use another one called Midjourney, which I have access to. And the way it's doing, it's actually generating art. It's not just taking an image from here and there. It's actually looking at all the patterns. And in this big training set, they call it, are images of most of the paintings that have been shared on the web. Paintings, drawings, photographs, and everything. And so a very common thing to do is to, for people to ask for something unusual in the style of so-and-so. And And a very common request is certain illustrators that have a very realistic painting style is to say, you know, draw me a, a space station in the style of Gurney, I think his name is Gurney Norman, who is I don't have his name correct. We'll have to get the right name, who is a, a, an illustrator. And so you get this amazing image in, in his style. And you could be like, you know, paint me a picture of, you know, the World Trade Center in Van Gogh style. Hmm. And it does. It's very, very apt. And so the, the the question right now is, does the artist have any rights? About that? <laughs> Can he withdraw? He says, I don't want my images to be used by the AI. That's an interesting question. That's a very interesting question because in fact, what it is is human artists just consume. They're, they're being trained by millions and millions of art images and they'll imitate their heroes and they'll paint in the style of that until they can get their own style. Yeah. But they're basically hoovering up all the art images in the world and that goes into their brain and it helps them form their image. And that's exactly what the AI is doing. It's nearly no different. So, can the artists prevent humans from being influenced by his his style? Can he direct says I want humans to be influenced, but I don't want AIs to be influenced? So 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 there's kind of a messiness there that that I mean I don't know what the answer to that is, but there's there's a there's a messiness in the actual way that we're gonna use this, that's not clean and so if if i changed my mind to to kind of accept or understand that this is going to be a very very messy progress because the answers aren't always going to be obvious about this you know we can ask well who's responsible if it does something bad but that's this is a much more difficult question to answer and so so that's where i've changed my mind
0: okay see the answer and it is interesting to, to kind of think about Messiness, Art's really interesting, you know, too. But when it comes to, you know, how much we can really outsource to robotics and in terms of software, like I I work in software as a service and the amount of that we're able to do on just accounting perspective is incredible. So, you know, we think about it being incorporated into the military. There's all these implications that definitely spell out messiness. But on that point, I I did want to get to a question that I had for you around nationalism. You did a podcast that I thought was really interesting in which you equated nationalism to racism in the future. I think some people might bristle at that idea just because of how many issues we have around race, racism in America today, but I'm actually 100% on the same page as you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of tend to look at you know countries like Russia, North Korea, or or to some degree China as being the evidence of why nationalism is can be a bad thing, but then we I feel like when you Criticize America, you can be called out for not being a patriot in some regard. I just wanted to understand what your thoughts on nationalism
1: were and why you think that it's a dangerous idea. Most of our national borders are quite arbitrary. I mean, if you go to places like the Mideast and others, the British Empire just drew lines. And they were lines that they thought should be there, and there was no real reason. And they often were very divisive among ethnic groups, you know. And they didn't care. And so the idea now that these people are somehow to champion those arbitrary lines. I mean, if you want something really weird, this is not quite the same thing. But read the history of the American states and the borders of American states. It's so bizarre. The uh, the borders are just basically weird artifacts of some moment that don't really have true meaning in our own borders of a nation. There's been no American president who has ever died under the same flag that they were born under. As our nation's borders have been changing and they will continue to change. And so so that's one thing. It's just that the, the very concept of a nation is kind of arbitrary. And of course, it's completely arbitrary that you happen to be born in it it's kind of weird yeah <laughs> like you're a patriot does that mean that if you were born in china you'd be a patriot in china you know or yeah India? and so it's kind of like sports teams a little bit there's a natural thing if you're going to root for your home team in the olympics or something but that that needs to be transcended there is a, a level of tribalism that works for humans because we are very tribal. But civilization is about transcending those things, and we can be taught to transcend them. And that's part of what civilization is about. And our next level of civilization is to transcend the tribalness of Mm -hmm. nation-states. And nation-states are... It's often said that they're too big for... the small things, and they're too small for the big things. And so they're they're often not really the best size or level to, to, to do things. And what we know very clearly is that we have planetary problems, and therefore we have to have pr- planetary solutions. And often the nation-state agenda gets in the way of that. And the kind of nationalism that I'm talking about is the ones that where the nationalism – The belief that their sovereignty transcends any kind of global cooperation is Mm -hmm. wrong. And so, one of the things I tell people is I'm not a pacifist, I'm a policifist. Meaning that I think the the problem with war is that we have this idea in our planet today that nation states have a right to solve the wrongs that they believe they've been injured with. A police state solves this problem by having a third, impartial third party. So, if, if two people are having a feud and someone harms another, you don't have the right to harm them back to apply the, the justice. We have a system, and it's called police in courts. And you go to them, and they decide, and then they met out the punishment. And that breaks the cycle of revenge. Well, nations, we're operating with this idea that nations have a right, if one country harms them, that they can hit back. Um, and we don't want that. We want to have a police system where you appeal to the system, and then the system, if, if there is a punishment or a restitution, they will apply it. And until we have that, War becomes much more common because that's the only way that nations believe that they have uh, any, any right to fairness. And so we need to have a system where the nation states don't have that perceived sovereignty, where they believe they have the right to protect themselves or whatever. And we need to have this international court system. Now, the problem with the court systems, like the UN, is that the UN is very undemocratic. I've never elected anybody. And so so, so, so we, we have to kind of step up our game and try to imagine how we have a system that is really representative of most people on earth. What that looks like, I have no idea. It's really hard to imagine how you have something that would, I mean, if nation states are too big for small things, it's like the planetary system is going to be way, way too big. But it's going to be needed. And so we can use some innovation and ideas about how we can construct a system where you feel you actually are representative or have some say in the governance at the planetary scale. And um, as I don't think it's impossible. I think it's difficult, but possible. And there might be mechanisms of representation that we don't have right now. And so what that might be, I don't know, but I do believe it's something we should be working on. You make a lot of sense when, you, when you're talking about you know, these arbitrary lines that we create to form
0: nations. I agree with that. And then to your point earlier about being equatable to racism, I think some of the undertones of nationalism are racist. So they are kind of bundled in there as well. One thing that I thought was interesting is I have optimism about this because I think that we are moving towards a more decentralized planet where we're concerned with more planetary issues. I think we're going to have to be at some point. One of the things I find really interesting is that a lot of these companies are now responsible for people that exceed the number of population of yeah. the nation. So when you look at Apple or Google or Facebook, they're responsible for entire nations of people in a lot of ways and are having to construct kind of governments within the company in order to meet the requirements of their customer. I'm kind of curious what you think of that, because that's going to to your point about things getting yeah, yeah. messy. I think that's uh-huh. messy.
1: Well, What's happened is some of these platforms, we we'll call them platforms, have grown to such a size that they begin to have kind of power governmental possibilities. And they're not necessarily either equipped for that or ready for that. That's been Facebook's thing. It's like, oh, my God, they're governing at the level of a, of a, a large nation. And they were not at all ready for that and don't really even want to do it. But they are kind of being forced to. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we might see is, you know, we might have a whole other level or variety or species of organization that plays a role. And that might be kind of platforms or something beyond platforms. One of the, going back to blockchain, one of the things that they're experimenting with are these DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations that are run by code. Well, it's very clear that we have corporations, we've got governments, and we have nonprofits but there might be a fourth or fifth form of organization that can accomplish things in the world. And so a platform is another one of those. And there might be something where there's a platform plus that does actually take on some of the attributes of government. And we see a little bit of that happening in China with Baidu and Weibo. And so I think we can start to imagine other kinds of very large organizations where maybe there's a million people involved that are trying to do something and how are they governed and what is the organizational structure. And so this new technology will permit us to do that. And and I think we're going to see some of these new larger organizations come into the world that main platforms may be one of them or they may be the beginning of them, but we can use these technologies. And I think when we see AR and Smart classes and we have a presence of people working remotely, I think that's also going to accelerate this creation of another kind of organization that's not just a corporation for profit. It's not a government thing. Maybe it's not nonprofit. It's something else. And that's where I'm hopeful that some of these innovations will take place.
0: Mm. That's a great answer. And and you mentioned being hopeful. So the theme of the podcast is really just trying to help people navigate their anxiety and existentialism, because there's lots of things to be pessimistic about right now. But you recently gave a TED Talk about why you're optimistic about the future. And I was hoping that maybe you can just give us a few things to consider in order to help us to be a little bit more optimistic about the future as well.
1: Yeah. So... I realize that optimism is kind of a temperament that varies from person to person. And some people find it much easier to be naturally optimistic and others are a little bit more anxious. So what I would say is we have an obligation to be as optimistic as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we want to be optimistic is because it's a very complicated world and anything really good in this world is going to be complicated. We were just talking about, you know, trying to imagine a world with less war that's transcends some of nationalistic things and maybe has a planetary governance of some sort. That's a very, very, very difficult thing to make happen. But what we know about it is that it's not going to happen accidentally, inadvertently. It will only happen if we can kind of picture it and conceive it and believe that it's possible.
0: Hmm.
1: So that, that work of imagination, of kind of imagining this world and then believing that it's possible that's necessary to make it happen. If you want to have, you know, if you, if you want to have a communicator that you can hold in your hand like the Star Trek's, you had you had to kind of believe that it was possible to do and then you can kind of imagine it to do it. So the iPhone was an act of optimism. And so we need to be optimistic, have optimistic visions of a future that we desire in order to make it happen. It's much more likely to happen if we can imagine it first and believe that it it's possible. And so optimism plays a role in creating the future that we want. The way I often shorthanded is our future is basically going to be built by optimists because they are the ones who are imagining it and believing it's possible and they're going to build it. So if you want to play a role in the future, you want to be as optimistic as possible. That's one reason. Well, Kevin, Kelly, I really
0: appreciate you spending this time with me. I know that you have a hard stop soon, so I'll let you go. But I thought maybe a good way to close out our conversation would, if I could just tell you, it's a very brief story. And that is when I was 14 through, through a series of coincidences, I ended up in your house and I was given a tour and mm-hmm. I was in a place, kind of a crossroads in my life, even at 14, where I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My dad's an insurance, wanted to be an insurance agent. My mom wanted me to go to law school. And uh, I was always ambitious, but I never really felt like I had anything to aim at. And I ended up in your study. And for listeners, it is immaculate. It is one of the coolest places I've ever been. Mm -hmm. I'm a big book fan. So it's floor-to-ceiling books, glass glass floors. And I was just stunned to be there. And uh, I met you. And it was probably completely insignificant to you. But I asked you what you did for a living. And you told me that you were a writer. And it was the first time in my life that I ever felt like, wow, like I can be a writer and this is pop, this is an actual path. And to be honest, I didn't know who you were at the time, right. but as I've kind of matured and, and found my own path, I've definitely revisited your works. I've read your books and you've been a really big inspiration to me. So the fact that that happened and it's kind of set me on a path in life that I feel like I'm on and now we're, we're having this conversation, it really is a tremendous honor for me. And it's, it's a really big bucket list thing. That 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 this has happened, and so I just wanted to say so thankful that you joined me for this conversation, and it's been a wonderful experience
1: for me. Well, Donnie, thank you for reaching out, and it's been a delight to hear your questions. I really appreciate you. you ask great questions. Keep doing that. I think questions are more important than answers these days. Answers we get on Google. Questions are something that humans are really good at. So thank you for your questions and. I admire your ambition, and I wish you the greatest success coming up. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it.
0: How did you like that conversation? I know that I definitely enjoyed having it. Feel free to shoot me a note to let me know your thoughts on Instagram at here's Johnny, Nava and feel free to toss me a follow while you're there if you'd like to stay up to date on future episodes of the podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Kevin Kelly, you can check out his website at kk.org. There you can sign up for his weekly newsletter, check out his photography, different books that he's published, as well as a collection of articles residing in his archive called The Technium That Is Just... Absolutely full of interesting and incredible articles. So I highly, highly recommend you check them out. I'm going to be linking all of that in the show notes, but I'll also be sure to include a few of my personal favorites to get you started. Lastly, on your way out, feel free to give this podcast a rating. It really helps with the algorithm, but also would just be like a super cool thing of you to do. So thank you for that. Until next time, I'm Johnny Nava and here's to you and all of the beautiful and wonderful things that lie. Waiting for you in your future. Cheers.